Well, it's good to be with you all. What a, that was one of my favorite songs right now. The Lord, our God, he's the one who's, who's done it all. And we're grateful and we get to celebrate that each and every Sunday. Uh, but today is exciting for me. We've got uh, a classroom full of new people who are walking through Discovering Greenville Oaks. And it's just encouraging to see new faces. And so if, if maybe you're new to us and maybe you're uh, thinking about, is this a place I want to connect more? I want to encourage you, pay attention to the, the handout in the weeks to come. There will be another class that will come up in a couple of months. And we'd love to have you in there to talk more about who we are and where we see God leading us and what it means to be a part of this church family. Well, last week we, we started a conversation uh, about the future, about what God is going to do in the final days. And I hope last week was an encouragement to you. If you didn't get a chance to hear last week's message, I'm continuing to build on that this week. And so I want to encourage you to go back this week and check out our website, our, the sermons available there, or download our, our iTunes podcast. Uh, there's a free podcast there that you can download that when you miss weeks, you can uh, get it easily on your, on your devices. And so love for you to go back and get it because it, I'm building on that this week. But uh, last week we talked about uh, the hope of what God's going to do in the future. We walked through this series of the, the life of Jesus from him coming to earth to his death, to his resurrection, to his ascension, and the hope of his return, his second coming. And so we're going to continue to talk about that second coming today. But today I, I want us to begin with a word of prayer as we ask for God to come, come quickly. That's the prayer that we're taught in Scripture at the end is that God would do His work. And, and so would you pray with me as we open our time in the Word today? God, I thank You so much uh, for the world You have created. You call it good, and yet so often, God, we don't see the gift that it is. So God, this morning as we talk about the future, about all that You plan and will do, God, we're looking into a fog. We, we don't see clearly yet, but we long for the day we'll see You face to face. And we're all shall be well once again. We pray this in the name of Jesus this morning. And I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Well, there's a couple of reasons we started this conversation about the good news last December, if you can believe it's been that long. Maybe you can. Uh, it, it's, it's been a, a conversation to remind us of what the good news is in a time and age where most of what we know is bad news. We've got so much bad news that that we hear on a regular basis. And the gospel means good news. It means good news, not about what we can do or how we perfect ourselves or how we become good enough so that God will love us uh, or desire us more. No, no, no. The good news is about what Jesus Christ has already done on our behalf. And so we align ourselves with God because of this good news. But I think it's also important, not that we just know the good news, but we know the story we've committed our lives to. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 3, if you have your Bible, feel free to turn there with me. Peter says some things about the hope that we have and why we ought to know more about this. This is what it says in 1 Peter 3 verse 15. These words are timely, I think, as we talk about what's to come in the days to come. 1 Peter 3 verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So what is the reason for the hope that you have? It's important for us to know that and to be able to point other people to that hope. And our hope is found in Jesus Christ. Amen? But I haven't always heard the story told as if Jesus is the central character in this story. And I want to talk about the story I grew up with, with the gospel, because here's what I believe about the gospel. And what I'm coming to know is that I, 
I had about four chapters in the Bible that were left out in the story of the gospel I learned growing up. Now, there are a few more. I couldn't tell you much about Leviticus 23 just standing in front of you this morning. There's four particular chapters that I think are bookends to this story that if we miss out on these, we won't fully understand the good news as, as God frames it. Most of the ways that I've heard the gospel talked about, the good news, begins in Genesis chapter 3. So two of those chapters are one and two. Chapter 3 begins a story about the fall, right? The fall is this story about Adam and Eve, and they, they, they eat of this fruit, and they're separated from God in some way. The fall is the problem that becomes the, prob- or is the problem that the rest of Scripture is seeking to solve. And so God tries to work his rescue mission through Israel. He tries to call them as a contrast community. These people who are going to live differently than the rest of the world and bring a message of good news, but they don't really carry it out faithfully, do they? They were slaves in Egypt, God frees them, but they end up building the temple of the Lord on the backs of slaves. Just an incredible failure on their part, and yet we know failure, don't we? We know that we have failed to be that contrast community as well. And so what does God do? He, he, he starts over and he sends Jesus into the world. And Jesus comes as this good news. He comes to do what Israel could not fulfill, to, to do what we could not fulfill, And so this story is told of Jesus coming into the world. This is the story you've been told, right? Fall, and then God coming to restore that relationship back with us. But in the American church, that story has primarily been told in individualistic terms. It really becomes about me being saved and coming back to relationship with God. And we've we've highlighted the individualistic part of this. Now, there is an individual part. God loves every single human being, and he wants us to be restored back into relationship with him. But the language of personal relationship with Jesus Christ that is common in our culture is found nowhere in Scripture. The the, the question that most evangelistic programs I was taught to kind of walk through with people I wanted to share the good news with, it came down to individuals. And this was the question I was taught to ask. Do you know where you would end up if you were to die tonight? Which is a great conversation starter, right? Right? We tell the story as if God is primarily interested in in saving individuals from eternal damnation and for eternity in heaven. But when we focus on the individual at the center of this story, then who's the main character in the story? What I found is most often the way I tell the story and try to bring people into this good news is that I become the center of the story. And God becomes the supporting actor who's trying to work in my life to bring me back to the place I should be in. It's a gospel of individual salvation, a personal salvation, and we have over-individualized this gospel that's about far more. Yes, it includes a love for individuals. Yes, it's about us being saved, but it's about a whole lot more than just that. It's a truncated version of the larger story of good news that I want to share with you this morning. The story was missing four chapters, and it was the two at the beginning, and it was the two at the very end. Genesis 1 and 2, and Revelation 21 and 22. And often when you leave out the beginning and ending of a story, you're going to wind up with a different story altogether. I was thinking this week about different stories in our culture, about novels that are written, about movies that have been produced, and I was thinking about what would those stories be like if you were to take out the beginning and the ending of those stories? And I got to thinking about one in particular, so spoiler alert, if you don't know the end of Titanic, I'm about to ruin it for you, okay? Now this story, if you were to put it to music and create a trailer for it, for instance, without, with certain parts removed, specifically the ending of the story, perhaps the beginning, it turns into a little different story than 
how it goes otherwise. In fact, we've got a clip, I think, to show right now on that. You're missing part, certain parts of that story. It just seems like a romantic comedy, doesn't it? Or a drama, maybe. The story ends a little differently. In fact, I still remember, I, every time I see Leonardo DiCaprio in that movie, I, I get jealous because it was my middle school years that the girls in my class, I think Holly was included in that group, went to the theater probably six or seven times to see that movie. Now, they would have loved it much more if you'd left out the ending part, right? If the love story would have ended on a good note, but it doesn't quite end there. In fact, the story is a completely different story without the beginning and the ending. And I would suggest that though the details are different, what we've done with the gospel telling, the story of of the gospel is a little bit something like this. We've truncated it down, we've left off the beginning and the ending, and it becomes a different story altogether. Because the story begins with the fall, and it ends with God somehow restoring humanity back to him. But we've got to remember how this whole thing started. The Bible does not begin with a problem. The Bible begins with good news. You remember how Genesis 1 and 2 begins. You probably know that better than Revelation 21 and 22 because we've told the creation story a lot, even though it hasn't fit in our story of the gospel, perhaps. It's the story of God creating the world, and he creates it, and each day he creates it, and he steps back, and he calls it good, and then he creates humans, and, and he calls those humans good, and then those humans come into relationship with one another, and God says it's very good. The Bible begins with good news, not bad news. It's Genesis 3 where that story begins to shift. The Bible begins in a garden, and day after day, things go good. It doesn't begin with a problem. It begins with good news. And, and here's the irony. The gospel that I grew up with, that I was supposed to share with my friends and neighbors and loved ones, there was something that I had to do in order to share the gospel with them. I had to first convince these people that I loved that they were horrible sinners, that were bound for eternal damnation, before I made the turn and turned it into good news to tell them the story of salvation. And that was always really daunting because these are people that I love and it's, it's nerve-wracking to have to convince them of this. But that's the starting point, right? Is hey, just want you to know you're an awful person. And as soon as you get to see that, then I can share with you the good news. But until we get there, it's impossible to see the good news. But that's not how Scripture begins, is it? It doesn't start by convincing us how bad we are. It starts by calling all of creation good. It starts by seeing that all of us are created in the image of God. And yes, we mess up, but that's not the beginning of the story. God created the world as good. The story doesn't begin with bad news. The story begins with good news. And the problem I had was I started without those first two chapters, and all of a sudden I assumed the worst about who I was, who I was created to be, about this world that God actually loves and desires to restore. But in Genesis 3, do, things do, do change. We don't leave this part out of the story. In Genesis 3, the fall happens, and humans are separated from God. There's this problem that happens between God and creation, between humans and one another, between God and humans. And it goes from them eating a piece of fruit to being kicked out of the garden to murder between brothers to the every inclination of the human heart being evil all the time, Genesis tells us. Genesis 3, the, the curse then is announced, and While many have concluded that these curses are prescriptive, God's prescribed the world to be this way, and until Jesus returns, that's the way it's going to be, I I see Genesis 3 and the curse as descriptive, not prescriptive. It's not God's desire for the world to be this way. He's describing the way the world is now that sin is unleashed in this world. There are consequences that happen. 
And this distinction is really important because once sin is unleashed in the world, tornadoes begin to wreak havoc and men tend to treat women as property and and work becomes our taskmaster. But God never intended these consequences to remain that way until Jesus returns eventually. He had in mind a community of people, a contrast community, the people of Israel and now the church to live differently and to reverse the effects of the curse in Genesis 3. Um, and if you believe these curses shouldn't be reversed, then it's time to get rid of our epidurals and our fertilizer. That might sound a little strange, but go with me if you would. I'm not advocating this, by the way. Let me make clear to the women like my wife who um, are tougher than I am. Genesis 3, verse 16. Listen to these words. Listen to the curses it's described. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and, are, and, and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. You see, if, God, if the curse is God's intention until Jesus finally returns and sets up the new heaven and the new earth, then we should do nothing to change the effects of the curse. Which means no epidurals because pain is the way God intended it. And no fertilizer because fertilizer makes the task of the hard toil that God intended, uh, it makes it a lot easier than what it should. There's other effects in there too that we have to be careful not to put on ourselves. Men ruling over women, that's a consequence of the fall to be repaired in the new heavens and the new earth and in our life together. But I believe these consequences are descriptive. They're not God's intention until uh, Christ returns. Instead, we as the people of God work to reverse the consequences of the fall. And this is God's project with his people. In an effort to reverse the curse, God covenants with Israel as a contrast community to show people how you live in God's future, the better way of God imagined in Scripture. We're not called to force people into the kingdom of God. We fascinate people into the kingdom of God with our life that's the future on display. We show signs and foretastes of the kingdom of God's future now. We pray heaven to earth and we invite the Spirit to help us in the work of bringing that to bear. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We are peacemakers. We have the ministry and the message of reconciliation, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And yet, our hope still lies on the horizon. We're not going to perfect this world so that God finally shows up. No, God is going to have to do that in the end. He will cleanse the earth as he's promised. We'll talk more about that next week. But this is larger than a story just about individuals being restored to relationship with God. This is a story about the whole cosmos being restored to God's intention for it. And the whole cosmos includes us in it. We're restored to relationship, but God has a bigger picture. And the bookends of Scripture give this picture. John 3.16, God so loved the world, the cosmos. The world is not just humans. It's the whole thing He's created that He loves and wants to bring back into relationship with Him. Listen to the words of Jesus as He talks about this whole idea. This is in the book of Matthew, Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 28, I want you to hear the the longing, the hope that Jesus points to with his disciples. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I love the word that Jesus uses here in in, in this passage. When When it's translated as the renewal of all things, it's one word in the Greek that's translated that way. It's the word palingenesia. Polynesia comes from two terms. It's a compound Greek word. Pollen means again, to happen again. Genesia, you, you see the connection to the first book of the Bible. It's like Genesis, right? It means birth. 
What Jesus is saying is when the world is rebirthed at the renewal of all things, at the Genesis again, all things will be made new. And Peter was there to hear these words, and Peter picks up on the same idea, the same preaching and message later on in the book of Acts. Look at what Peter says in Acts chapter 3 as he preaches to those who are present. Acts chapter 3, verse 19 and following. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that He may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive Him until the time comes for God to restore everything as He promised long ago through His holy prophets. What he's saying is Jesus is in heaven, but he's coming back. And he's not coming back so that we can all escape this earth and live his soul someplace else. No, God is coming to restore everything. It's the same vision that's given in Isaiah 65 of a new heavens and a new earth. It's the same vision that that John sees when he writes the Revelation. Revelation 21 and 22. The Christian story starts with a God who creates everything as good, and he's not about to give up on the good world he has created The prophets don't give us a picture of some esoteric realm where we go to live to be somewhere else. No, God, the prophets and John and Jesus and Peter all give us a picture of a restored earth, of God making his dwelling place among his people. God never gave up on his original creation. And the earliest Christian creeds have always affirmed the goodness of creation. And like the movie Titanic, if you you erase the bookends of Scripture, if you take off Genesis 1 and 2, And Revelation 21 and 22, you have a different story there. Which brings me to the other two chapters that we removed from the gospel. Revelation 21 and 22, if you have your Bibles, open there with me. Many of us have been to enough VBSs perhaps over the years. Our kids are learning the story right now, the story of the creation. But not as much preaching and teaching came to me out of the last two chapters in Scripture. We often miss the link between Genesis and what John's describing in Revelation. But you cannot miss the connections that happen between the first two chapters and the last two chapters. Listen to this description. This is Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then He said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I don't remember these words being preached growing up. The final picture isn't of humans, again, escaping the earth. It's what's pictured in Revelation 21. The picture aligns with the hope of the prophets. It aligns with the hope and message of Jesus. It's an answer to the prayer that Jesus has taught us to pray from the very beginning. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Revelation paints a picture of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. That God will make His dwelling place among His people on a renewed earth. He's making everything new, and this is good news, church. And just listen to the connections between Genesis 1 and Revelation 21 and 22. In both of those places, the tree of life is mentioned. In both of those places, the river of life is mentioned. 
In Genesis, there's the mention of the curse. In Revelation, there's the mention that there will be no more curse. In the beginning, there's day and there's night. At the end, there will be no more night. In the beginning, the Spirit hovers over the waters, the chaos of creation. But in Revelation 21 and 22, there will be no more sea. In the beginning, there's a marriage between Adam and Eve. At the end, there's a marriage between heaven and earth. This is the good news of God. You see, heaven is not the end of the world. It's actually the beginning of the world as God always desired it to be. This is the Christian hope. Now, the gospel I grew up with was correct, okay? God still wants to restore individuals, and the way he does that is through this middle piece of how he restores humans through Jesus Christ, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. All that is right. And as we talked about last week, the thief on the cross goes to be with Jesus in paradise right after his death. But the hope isn't just that. The hope that Scripture points to is what happens after that. It's when Jesus returns to the earth and restores things as he always hoped they would be. When the wolf will lie down with the lamb. The child will play near the cobra's nest. And where we'll train for war no more. Where swords will be turned into plowshares. Now, I know these last, last week and this week, it's, been pretty theoretical, right? It's been about, what, what are we pointing to? And I, I got to tell you, I'm pointing into a fog. None of us see clearly. So I want to have humility about this. And there are other views that people can come to that I think are faithful to Scripture. In the end, we'll all see face-to-face and we'll be clear. But this picture has given me great hope. And over the next two weeks, what I want to begin to do is point us to, how does this make a difference on Monday? What does this change about our vocation and our work? What does this change about the sanctification process that God wants to do in each and every one of us? And I think this has tremendous implications for those things. But until next week, I want us to pray the prayer we've been praying at the end of our services. I want us to pray the Lord's Prayer together. Let's close with this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.